Bum, Welcome back to, to the, the Dead, Dead to the, the World, World podcast. podcast. I'm Lexi. I'm Mama Dawn. And I'm Tasha. And those were Mama Dawn's lovely sound effects in the beginning. Yeah, I don't know why. I just had this urge. I just really wanted to do bum, And it has been done. It has been done. Do you feel better? I forced it. So if you didn't like it, it's not their fault. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that's funny. We did the intro in our order of speaking today. Maybe that's what we should start doing so we don't, like, get confused halfway through and be like, wait, who who was going next? I already don't remember how we did the intro. Yeah, I mean, I guess I know me, you, Tosh, because I know what order we're going in. (laughs) Anyway, do you guys want to hear a funny story? Yes. Of Tucker being a silly goose last night? I heard you say it was a dick while I was out in the hallway. I did. And then immediately Tosh was like, well, and I was like, yeah, I don't know why that's the word that came to mind. He was being a little jerk. My dog's a dick. You'll hear why. (laughs) Because I took him out to go to the bathroom, okay? It's cold outside. I didn't put his little shoes on. He won't leave them on. He he chews them, whatever. I've given up on the snowshoes, okay? Yeah. So we're out there and I'm like, he starts limping a little bit. Wait, I have a question. What? Do you have the little coat? Does he still wear the coat He's I too bought him? fat for the coat, Oh, so we need to get him a new coat? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> he didn't mind the coat, but it, it, it don't quite Velcro like it used to. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I'm taking him out to the bathroom. Literally this morning, it was like three degrees. So I don't know how cold it was last night, but it's very cold here right now. Yeah, it was super cold. Ugh. I think the high today was like 23 degrees. Mm-hmm. So... He, He's walking. I think he's almost done anyway, but he starts limping with his little front paw holding up like it hurts. I'm like, oh, it's probably cold or there's like a rock stuck. So I grab his paw and I start wiping it off and a little salt rock did come out from in between. So I was like, okay, that was probably what was hurting him. And he steps down and he pulls it up and whines at me like it hurts. And I was like, okay. So me being the great dog mom that I am, carry him up four flights of stairs because his paw is hurting. Mm -hmm. And we get upstairs and he happens to see Sebastian and just starts running around and jumping. He's like, hi, dad. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I think he didn't want to walk up the stairs. He milked the system. He was being a dick. You're right. I was like, are you joking? But then I'm like, I don't want to be a terrible dog mom and be like, walk anyway. You're faking it. If his paws actually hurt. But literally by the time we got up there, I was like, <gasps> like he's like 40 pounds. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's a, he's a oh thick my boy. Gosh. Four flights of stairs. I was not okay. Thick with two Cs. Yeah. That is pretty funny. Which is not the first time he's faked a limp to get out of things. So I should know that one by now. But Do you want to hear something funny on my side? Yeah. So last week, I mentioned I had to go into work, even though my foot surgery and it's still kind of hard to get around. Um because we were doing a sales training and I was doing some of the sales training. I had to be there. And then we had events afterwards and whatnot. And so I did a ton of walking. But the funny thing is, is that Friday I had an appointment in the middle of the day to go get my stitches out. And so I had asked um, the sales manager who was putting the schedule together. I was like, hey, you have me on Friday morning. I really don't want to come into work Friday morning because I work in a different city than I live, but my appointment was in the city I live, like right next to my house. Uh And so um, a couple of days later, you know, we had added some other things in that had been missed and I saw the schedule and I saw I had been moved to Wednesday evening. So I I told him, thank you. Thank you for moving that. That'll make my week so much better because I could just work from home Friday morning. And then on the day of Wednesday morning, like I'm all prepared to give my presentation that afternoon. And I get the schedule, and I'm not on the schedule. And I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, Rob, where's the schedule that has me scheduled for Wednesday? And he just looked at me funny. He's like, I was wondering what the crap you were talking about. I didn't move you. You're still Friday morning. I was like, like, what? what? And then all of a sudden I realized, 
I think I had dream reality confusion. Welcome to the club. Mom. I must have because I literally remember seeing the schedule, but I then when I went and looked, I couldn't find it anywhere. So I had to have dreamed that I was moved to Wednesday because that's what I wanted. Well, I feel like what always clues me in that it's a dream is try to think of what you were doing before or after you saw that your schedule was on Wednesday. And if you can't think of nothing, that's usually how I know. That's because mm, I'm like, okay, I don't smart. remember sitting down and opening my email when I saw those work emails that I yeah. thought that it was a dream. You just, if you can't remember before and after, it probably didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, in my dream, since I'm positive that's what it was now, either that or I blipped into another reality for a short period of time and blipped back. Maybe. Mm, sure, because I remember <laughs> being at my desk and opening up the email after we had discussed adding something. Hmm. And so we had to move things around to add that. And so I thought during that change, I saw that I was at a different time. Either that or I was looking at Friday morning and just in my mind was like, oh, that's <laughs> Wednesday. Just a silly Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Wednesday. But crazy. anyway, that was my crazy thing. Although we did do an escape room as a group. And yeah, I shouldn't have been on my foot for that long, but <laughs> it was so much fun. I love my, those. My work people are great. I like them. Do you have any updates, Tosh? Um, the only update I will give it this time is I am now officially two days into the third trimester. <laughs> and I can already feel it. Baby girl, be kicking and growing. Like, you know how people are like, oh, just wait till you get like close to your due date and you're just ready to have this baby. I'm only two days in my third trimester. I'm already like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> get her out. Get her out. <gasps> well, only three short months left. Yeah. Sorry, I get scared every time we talk about trimesters. We have a bad track record with that. <laughs> well, and the thing I keep telling her, this was my experience, so hopefully it's hers, that I did not gain any weight or really get any bigger the last month. It was like, by the last month, you guys had grown to your full size, and it was just, you know, development time. So hopefully that happens. That's true. I've only really gained get 10 pounds. Yeah, you're like skinny mini. Yeah. So you'll probably gain another 10 pounds in the next two months, and then you probably won't grow You just that. told me I wouldn't, if I'm the like you, you month. wouldn't gain. She said the last month. The last month. month. Oh, the last You still two have months. two months. You're definitely going to gain. You're probably going to get a lot bigger in the next two months. Yeah. I was actually talking to Kyle about that today. I was literally saying like, oh, like... I can tell now is when I'm actually like, like, I feel like I'm going to pop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like before it's like, yeah, you're hard, it's harder to bend over and it's harder to pick this up and it's kind of more exhausting to walk up this stairs or whatever. But now it's like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even want to move. Yeah. Your lady like, parts <sighs> are a mystery because you can't see them. Correct. <laughs> oh, never thought about that fun little fact of pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. You have to like spread your legs to bend down and tie your shoes so your belly can go between your legs. Otherwise you can't like bend over. And then sometimes your feet are so swollen, you can't really get your shoes on. See, that's one nice thing. I have had no swelling. That's no nice. swelling, no stretch marks. Knock on wood. We all knock. Okay. Well, well, we should get started. What are we talking about today, Lexi? We're doing a very special episode where we talk about one of my interests, which is murder. Murder <laughs> was the case. True crime, I guess I should say. Also, there's like a big thing going around right now where people are getting very but. I guess I shouldn't say butthurt because I understand why people are upset that people are so obsessed with murder yeah. cases. But some people are like really getting upset about it. I'm like, I think it's okay to be interested in it. I don't think that you should run around being like, I love murder. Well, my guess would be that most people are like you, the people that have an interest in it. It's like, okay, well, if I learn how all these murders have been committed, then I can be prepared if I find myself in a situation to know yeah. what worked for I'm somebody else. I'm just an anxious person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people these days are getting very offended by people saying that they are fans of true crime, like that phrase in particular. 
but I, don't, I mean, I guess I'll just throw that out in case we get canceled for this episode. Anyway, I'm going <laughs> to go on now. <laughs> so, well, ours does have to do kind of a sleep, sort of not a really. sleep. Not really at all. Okay, you go ahead. <laughs> I mean, kind I, of. I, mine, mine does have a teeny bit to do with sleep. Teeny bit. Mine has maybe a sentence about sleep. Let's go. <laughs> okay, let's go. Okay, so the one that I chose to do it on is the Klein Falls Axe Attack is what it's referenced as. You know what that reminds me of? Hmm. Remember Hoodwinked? Yeah. And the, and the axe Guy. Actor, actor who like rolls down the hill and jumps through the window with his oh, axe. Oh, yes. That's what that reminded me of. I don't think he's an actor. I, that was just my visual. In Hoodwinked, he is an actor. Yeah, he he's like, like wants, a, he like is going to auditions and stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. for, I think it's like a, like a body deodorant something. You remember way some too weird much stuff that. about that movie. <laughs> okay, I love that movie. I think I watched it a lot. She does love that movie. Okay. Okay, continue. So, I'm going to just jump right into it. So, in the summer of 1977, 19-year-old Terry... <laughs> Am I'm sorry. I okay? In the summer of 1997... I'm in the summer of 1977. 77. I said it wrong. 19-year-old Terry Jentz okay. and her roommate, 20-year-old Ava Goldman... I just assumed Terry was a boy, so I'm glad you no, said it was a girl. No, they're both girls. Okay, both girls. Both girls. Um, Terry was from Illinois, and Goldman was from Massachusetts. Don't Illinois. Say Illinois. Illinois. I'm so sorry. I know. It's okay, because guess what? I normally would say it with an S, but now because I talk to people from Illinois. You get yelled at. I'm like, well, no, I just make sure I like. <laughs> they sure correct I you. Right. I've gotcha. been corrected multiple times. All right. Well, they were both Yale students, and they decided to cycle across. Why did you both look at me like that? I didn't. You I both was, at the same time went. I just no. Was, I, I just was just getting okay. Sorry, I honestly sorry. was just thinking. You know what? They can maybe just hmm, like it has an S on it. So you know what? You're fine. Keep going. <laughs> Illinois. Honestly, yeah. Illinois. Illinois. Why is there an S at the yeah, end? Yeah. Why is there an S? You know what? Don't cancel us, but explain. We want knowledge. <laughs> okay. So they are both Yale students, and they were deciding to cycle across the United States via the newly opened Transamerica Trail, which newly opened in 1977, just to clarify. <laughs> um, upon completing their tour, which ended in Estonia, Oregon, both women headed east through the state. On the night of June 22nd, they stopped at the Klein Falls State Park in, I don't know how to say this, Deschutes County is my best guess, and they decided to camp there overnight along the river. Um, Jens would later recall being unnerved by the location and that both women felt as though they were being watched. So it's a quote. I don't know from which one they didn't specify, but it says it was an animal instinct of danger and we both had it. We both had it separately and we shared it with one another. So they both just had a bad feeling that they shouldn't stay there, but they did anyway, which is our, my first sign to always follow your intuition. Yes. Your tummy knows things yep. <laughs> that you don't. That, like when you're hungry or what you're craving or when it, you're in danger. Exactly. Yes, the gut instinct is real. So around 11.30 p.m., while both women were asleep in their tent, they were awoken by the sound of a truck pulling up to the campsite. Gents initially believed that the vehicle was driven by partying teenagers who had driven up to the campsite. The vehicle then proceeded to drive over the tent before stopping. What and its the? tires pinned Jens to the ground at her chest. It broke both of her arms, one leg, her collarbone, and several ribs, as well as crushing her lung. And what? then... What the effity FFF? Yeah. A man exited the vehicle carrying an axe. So one of the girls, Jens, was pinned down. The man with the axe came at the other girl, Goldman, and hit her in the head six times. And then after he... 
hit her in the head, he went over to Jens and she said, I looked up at him. If you haven't noticed yet, they survived this, which wow. is why they can tell the story. Yeah. So she says, I look up at him and open my eyes. And I said, take anything, but leave us alone. Please leave us alone. He brought down the axe slowly and I caught it in my hands right above my heart, grabbed the blade in my hands, and then he withdrew it. After she gent after she gents after gents begged the man he returned to his vehicle and drove away so although she was severely injured gents managed to stumble to a nearby road where she flagged down bill Penhollow and darlene gervius that's doing my best with the names they were two teenage boys who were passing by um one of the boys recalled that gents was so bloody it was dripping off her hair and the other Sorry, not the other. They both drove to the campsite to get the other girl who had been hit in the head. Um, while doing so, they noticed so a pair. Wait, of, oh, what? Just to clarify, so the girl who got run over with the truck sitting she on her got chest up after he left. While so the truck was still on her. No, wasn't no, no, it? Well, no. He left. He took the axe, got up, and drove away. Well, no, I mean, but the truck was on her while he was beating the oh. other girl with the axe. Yes. yes. So it wasn't just like a quick drive over. It was like, I'm going to sit on your chest for a while. Yeah, like he hit this girl with the axe. Now I'm going to leave. And she's the one that gets up. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Yeah, because so the girl amazing. who got hit in the head was passed out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, Makes yeah, sense. she got up and found a road. Crazy. Holy crap. Well, probably there's so much adrenaline Mm-hmm. That your body's like just True. overdrive. You're just in survival mode for yeah. sure. So when they were heading back to the campsite, they saw headlights in the distance, like watching them. And they were scared because they assumed that it was him, but it eventually drove away. So police arrived at the Klein Falls campsite after midnight and began investigating the scene. Police officers who inspected the scene examined tire marks left in the dirt. They determined that the vehicle likely had two bald tires in the rear that were six inches in width. One of the front tires was possibly bald, and while the other had significant tread. So both Jens and Goldman were taken to St. Charles Medical Center, and um, Goldman went into a nine-hour brain operation. Oh, my gosh. You know, just thinking about this, though, I bet the fact that they were in great shape probably helped to their successful in, success in surviving the incident. Yeah, probably. So detectives were unable to obtain a rounded description of the attacker from the victims. Goldman, who had sustained serious brain trauma, remembered nothing of the attack. And Jens, who was conscious throughout, did not see the face of the person. But she described him as a physically fit young cowboy based on his clothing and structure. Um, In the weeks following the attack, a local woman in Redmond told authorities that she had been told that the attacker was a local young man named Richard or Dick Dam. Um, He was 17 years old, and he was interviewed by by detectives on several occasions, and it was discovered that he had been in a fight with his girlfriend around the date of the attack, and though he never disclosed his specific whereabouts the night of June 22nd, um, the girlfriend denied that the two were fighting on that day, and though she stated that the two did fight often, um, a polygraph examination, they had him take two of them, and they did come up deceitful. But mm-hmm. he later came out that he was on meth when he took them, so they don't count. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, those are dismissible in court anyway, but sometimes they can kind of go based off of those. But because he was on drugs, they can't use them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that guy's girlfriend later told authorities that she had noticed that he had changed the tires on his truck shortly after the attack and that a toolbox located in the truck bed had been removed. And she also told the police that he had been very abusive to her throughout their relationship. And he's only 17 years old. 17. Crazy, right? 
Um, the other suspect in the attack was convict a convicted child rapist and murderer, Richard Wayne Bud Goodwin is his name. Um, after the attack, Goodwin was imprisoned for the murder of a five-year-old child whose skull he used as a candle holder, which is terrible. Oh, oh, I, Wait, Goodman oh. is the guy's last name, one of the guys. So the first guy we were just talking about, the 17-year-old, mm-hmm. he was a suspect. Right. But nothing that they could get from him led to anywhere. This was the other suspect in the case. So we're just going over him And now. what was the girl's name that got hit in the head with the axe? Goldman. So Goldman. yeah, they are similar. Okay, Goldman's the female. Mm-hmm. Goodman's the male. Who And that's the one who was the child rapist murderer? Yes. yes. I'm just making sure their last names were... Yeah, I was sorry. just making sure I wasn't getting like... Mm-hmm. And that last Flip-flopped. name does not fit a man who murders children well, no. and uses schools as not at all. holders. What a freaking a-hole. Yeah. So on the night of the girl's attack, um, a female relative of Goodwin's with whom he had allegedly had a sexual relationship with was possibly staying at those parks, which is how he got connected to the case. Um, Despite law enforcement's considering him as a suspect, Jen stated that he did not resemble the man she recalled attacking her. Okay. And I'm so sorry. I just barely realized it's Godwin, which is even worse. Yeah. It's not even good. Okay. So it's it's Godwin. Sorry. Not Goodwin. Yes, that is even worse. (laughs) So both Jensen Goldman obviously survived the attack and recovered from their injuries, though Goldman was left with vision problems resulting from her head trauma. In September 1977, Goldman's parents donated $3,000 to St. Charles Medical Center into a fund for critical care monitoring equipment under the names of the boys, the teenagers that saved them. Oh, that's so sweet. Which I thought was so cute. And then in 2006, Jens published a book recounting her life after the attack titled Strange Piece of Paradise. Um, while researching in preparation for the book, she discovered that the official records of the attack, including interviews, physical evidence, and crime scene photos, had been lost. Oh, my gosh. Mm, fishy. Very fishy. Lost, yeah. Yeah. They are just lost. So I do remember hearing about this case in a podcast. And in the podcast, they went into a little more detail that her writing the book about her life after was also included. Like, she was just trying to investigate. Obviously, I would if they hadn't found who tried to kill me. Oh, yeah. Um, was a lot of her trying to investigate what happened. And she couldn't find a lot of the information. That's Which, that terrible. always pisses me off so bad when, like, the cops just don't. I'm like, how do you just not have it? Like, Yeah, like, what, you just decided it didn't matter? quit in the trash yesterday or five weeks ago? Or yeah. did they think just because they lived that it really didn't matter if they caught the guy or not? I mean, regardless, I think according to the law. You're well, supposed no, to be holding on right. to that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I was just saying, you know, it sounds like their police well, department was Well, if that was, was the little... actual case and those cops hopefully don't have a job anymore. Yeah. Just well, saying. And that's bold of me to say, but I'm just saying. <laughs> well, the area they were at was a small town. I, I just always picture small towns because they're not used to dealing with murder. So oh, they might yeah. have just screwed up. That not, could be the not case. Not intending to. But yeah, I've just always thought that case is super interesting because what gets me is why them? They yeah. weren't even from that area. So I'm sure it was just a random attack i'm sure if i had to guess it was one of those situations where someone was high or on drugs or wasn't in their like right reality mind and just was upset about something else and just took it out on like that's why i have the suspicion that it is the 17 year old boy because if he was on meth yeah obviously had anger issues because he was beating his 17 year old girlfriend yep and if they were in a fight around that same night and they lived around that area it makes sense if he raged and it could have randomly also. went and did something. So I listened to a podcast called Park Predators, mm-hmm. and this kind of reminds me of a case that was a hate crime because it was a lesbian couple. Oh, so I wonder. I mean, 
just it was two women together. Mm-hmm. So there may be somebody thought that they were a Are couple. Are you talking about the Moab one? Yes. Mm, I've heard that one. I'm not talking about this particular murder, but there I watched like when you scroll through YouTube and random videos pop on and I just watch them, whatever. There was one where there was an individual who... Sorry, I all of a sudden was thinking about what's the right word to use, like unalived, murdered, like I just Suicide? for some reason no, like he murdered. Oh, okay. I just for some reason went like, couldn't think of the word. Couldn't think of the word I wanted to use. That was <laughs> weird. Brain. But anyways, killed like I think it was an older man and an older woman took their car, drove like sixteen hours to Texas, and then shot four other people. Oh, but there was no relation. That. He was just upset at his dad. And so he went and he just, just went on a kill. Yeah, so I'm spree. saying it could have just been something like totally random. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Was that all of yours, honey? Yep. Thanks. Okay. I'm gonna I went I went local. So there was a murder that I just really stuck with me that happened. <gasps> Ted back Bundy? In, no. Just kidding. I mean, yes, he did live in Utah for quite a bit, but no, I went with a little more recent one. It was in two thousand four. And it was the murder of Lori Hacking. And this one We'll all get into why it stuck with me so, so much. So I got my information from Murderpedia.org, but if you go out and read this on Murderpedia.org, my information will not be anything like theirs because I had to completely rearrange it. So it was in chronological order. (laughs) So it makes sense for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. So Lori K. Soares and Mark Douglas Hacking both attended Orem High School. Oh. Sebastian's alma mater. Yep, that's where Sebastian went. This is about 40 miles or 64 kilometers south of Salt Lake City, Utah. In a USA Today article by Debbie Howlett, it was reported that Mark and Lori were inseparable from the moment they met while on a trip with some friends to Lake Powell, Utah in 1994. For the 10 years that they had been together, their friends and family were impressed by their strong, intimate relationship. They were young, seemed deeply in love, and were preparing to move to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where Mark was going to attend medical school. Moreover, Mark and Lori recently learned that she was five weeks pregnant. They They had everything to look forward to. So, we start with Lori disappearing. Uh, At that time, Lori Hacking was 27 years old, and her husband, Mark Hacking, was 28 years old. And this all started on July 19th, 2004, which does anybody remember what July 19th is? Mom's birthday. Yeah. So this is part of why I think I remembered it so well. And Shelby's. And a lot of other people. I'm just happy birthday on July 19th. (laughs) Yeah. And Brett, if you listen, he's a guy I went to elementary school, well, all through high school. We have the same birthday. Anyway, uh, so these were uh, Mark's actions that day. So Paul Foy reported in a July 27, 2004 AP online article, that morning around 10 a.m., Mark called Lori's office at Wells Fargo in Salt Lake City, Utah, where she worked as a trading assistant. During a brief conversation with Lori's colleague, Brandon Hodge, Mark inquired about Lori. Hodge told Mark that she never made it into work, which was unusual since Lori had always been very punctual. Foy wrote that the phone was passed to Lori's supervisor, Randy Church, who recalled Mark saying that Lori went jogging around 5.30 that morning at Memorial Grove Park, but had not come home. Church urged Mark to immediately call the police. 
Mark then called the Salt Lake City Police Dispatch at approximately 10.07 a.m. Around the same time a call that call was made, Mark also called some of Lori's friends asking if they knew where she was. According to the July 27, 2004 article in the Salt Lake Tribune, the worried husband said that he had ran the jogging route three miles each way to search for his wife. Even though his, her car was parked at the entrance of the park, there was no sign of Lori. When Mark called the police a second time around 10.49 a.m. asking them for assistance in finding his wife, they told him that they generally respond to missing persons calls after 24 hours and suggested he called the hospitals and jails. Which, can I just say, I think that's so stupid. It's like if the person in your life knows that this is a very... Like an abnormal... Uncharacteristic yeah. response for that person, yeah, they should listen. Like, yeah, my personal opinion is... Like, the first 24 hours is, like, one of the most important, like, they get away mm -hmm. with stuff because you didn't start looking before the 24 hours. So, basically, yeah. they have a whole day ahead. Yeah, I just think it's so dumb. Well, I mean, that's why Amber Alerts were a thing. Like, that's a True. case of a child. I know that they should do it for everything. I agree. Yeah. But that's the why they have Amber Alerts is so that if there's, like, proof that they really were taken, everyone's looking, like, immediately because it is important. Mm -hmm. But it's just the whole, well, running away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they just decided to go somewhere, didn't tell yeah. you, or they didn't want, they ran away on their own, or and I don't they think wanted it, their own space. And it's like, regardless if that's the case, I feel like if someone's worried enough about it that they could be putting themselves in danger or something, it's like, who yeah. who who cares if it was taken at their own will or not, you know? I don't know. But then the other thing is, is if police looked into every disappearance that lasted like two or three very hours, true. they would be wasting a lot of their time. So I get both sides is all I'm saying. Well, I, I guess if you really think it's an emergency, basically don't back down at them yeah, telling you. Just oh, keep calling. Just, you know, just wait 24. I'd say, hell no. You better get your booty out there. <laughs> wow. She's yelling at us. <laughs> So at that point, Lori's family, friends, and colleagues volunteered to help Mark in the search. Some of her friends flew in from other parts of the country to participate, and unfortunately, they were coming up empty-handed. So police actions on the same day. Um, the police conducted a search of the apartment. During their search, they became convinced that they were dealing with a homicide. Evidence collected at the apartment included a couple, the couple's box springs, a receipt for a new mattress and bedding, a bloody knife found in the bedside drawer in the couple's bedroom, pieces of carpet, clothing, and a letter found in a separate bedroom allegedly written by Lori. Other important pieces of evidence taken from various locations included a trash bin from outside the couple's apartment, a cut-up excuse me, a cut-up mattress that matched the couple's box springs was found in the trash near the University of Utah Hospital, where Mark worked as an orderly. A clump of dark hair found in a dumpster outside a Chevron gas station near the hospital. Materials taken from two cars um, owned by Mark and Lori. Surveillance videotapes taken from the three locations. A hospital, a Mormon church located near the park where she a alleged... Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, this was written a long time ago. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to say. <laughs> anyway, that was located near the park where she allegedly disappeared and a convenience store. So interestingly... Wow, that was hard to say. Police also discovered that between 9.45 and 10.30 a.m. on the day that Lori went missing, the time Mark claimed to have searched the park and called the police and Lori's colleagues, he was buying a new queen-size mattress at a local bedding store. Even more intriguing, the front seat of Lori's car, which was found near the park, was adjusted to fit a much larger person. 
Lori was only 5'4", but the seat was moved back to accommodate someone around six foot tall. Another piece of incriminating evidence found at the apartment were Lori's keys. Had she driven to the park to jog, one would expect that she would have had her keys with her when she disappeared. I, obviously, I mean, I've heard about this case before. I think it is wild that they notice. Like, it's so good that they notice stuff like that. But that's just something a normal person wouldn't think to look at. Like, where her seat in her car was set at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, police, they're trained well. Yeah. (laughs) Especially detectives. So, July 20th, the next day, hundreds of missing person posters bearing Lori's image and contact numbers were hung around Salt Lake City. Before long, the search for Lori had become a community crusade involving more than 12,000, not, sorry, 1,200, not 12,000. Woo, that would have been a lot. (laughs) 1,200 volunteers. She was both admired and respected, and people were very concerned about her safety and the safety of the community. As the evidence mounted, it became increasingly clear that Mark was involved in Lori's disappearance. Worse yet, over the subsequent days, (laughs) it also became likely that she was dead. Lori's family braced for the worst possible outcome, but refused to give up hope finding their daughter. Even if she was dead, it was important for them to find her body so that she and her unborn baby could receive a proper burial. The weight would improve or would prove to be unbearable. And then on July 22nd, from early on in the case, the police discovered that Mark was not the person he claimed to be. Mark told Lori and her family that he graduated with honors in psychology from the University of Utah. He also told them that he had been accepted to medical school at the University of North Carolina, which is why he and Lori were preparing to move there. However, CNN reported that Mark's father, Douglas, Dr. Douglas Hacking, knew what Lori and her parents didn't. On July 22nd, Dr. Hacking told reporters that his son never received his bachelor's degree and had never been accepted to medical school. Hmm. Wait, were you talking about these this the other day? I may have mentioned Like, were it. you like, oh, this is what I'm going to talk about? Yes. Because I'm like, why do I feel like I you've said this before. <laughs> but it did also happen in Utah, so you could have just heard about it no, before. No, you were talking about it the other day. Well, and another thing that makes this relevant to us is that Dr. Hacking, his Mark's father, actually was at the same pediatric office that you guys went to, and so Natasha, or Alexis actually was diagnosed with pneumonia by him when she was like eight months old, something like that. Wild. So I actually know who he is and have met him and talked to him multiple times. <laughs> So, and he is a great guy, just say that. Um, So, back to this. Mark's education was just an elaborate lie, which he fabricated because he felt under pressure to excel academically. So, his dad's a father, his brother's a father. His dad's a father. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) A doctor. A doctor, thank you. Dad's a doctor, brother's a doctor. He feels like he's expected to be a doctor. So... Lori's family was shocked at Mark's deception, but refused to let it deter them from finding their daughter. Many involved in the search believed that if Mark was capable of lying about his education, he could be lying about what happened to Lori. Others believed that just because he lied didn't necessarily mean he was involved in her disappearance. Besides, he told his and her parents that he had done nothing or had nothing to do with it when they asked him. However, the police believe otherwise. From the moment the police took on the case, Mark was named the person of interest. The evidence, which was slowly mounting, pointing to him as their primary suspect. The precise events leading up to Lori's murder are as yet unclear. However, what is known is that while she was 
at work on Friday, July 16th, she called the University of North Carolina Medical School to get information confirming financial aid and learning that her husband had not been enrolled there. Oof. So Travis Reed, who wrote the artist article for AP on August 10th, 2004, uh, reported that Lori's colleagues noticed that she was visibly upset after the phone call and said she started to cry, then left work and went home early, probably to confront Mark. Court documents stated that around 5 p.m. that day, Lori called an employee at the University of North Carolina and left a message that suggested that Mark told her that the reason why he was not enrolled was due to a computer malfunction. It appeared as if Mark fabricated another story because there was no known computer malfunction and the records indicate that he never enrolled at the school. Yet Lori may have believed the story of the computer malfunction because later that night, the couple went to a party at her supervisor's mountain cabin and they seemed to be getting along well, Hallett stated in her article. However, the lie would resurface again on the evening of Sunday, July 18th. According to Travis Reed, Mark admitted to Lori that he lied about his education and future plans, which resulted in an argument between the couple. Reed reported that after the argument, Lori went to bed and Mark stayed up playing Nintendo games and then packed some moving boxes. Shortly after Lori's uh, disappearance, Mark Hacking was reportedly found running naked through the streets and was admitted to the hospital for a mental evaluation. While in the hospital, Mark engaged a locally prominent defense attorney, D. Gilbert Athey. Wait, this was the husband that this did this? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So he goes running naked through the streets. All right. Whatever floats your boat, I guess. Yeah. Maybe just don't kill people. I mean, I'm thinking set up for a mental. Mm. Yeah. Probably. Not sure it was real. Anyway, Mark's efforts to find his wife were cut short when he was admitted to the University of Utah's psychiatric unit for a mental breakdown. The loss of his pregnant wife appeared to have sparked a severe emotional crisis. In a bizarre twist of events, he had been hospitalized when the police found him wandering around Salt Lake City Motel naked except for a pair of sandals. <laughs> so that was, yeah, he ended up in a mental hospital for a little bit. As so, I think he should. Yeah. On July 25th, 2004, less than a week following Lori's disappearance, the police gathered a significant amount of evidence, which pointed to the possibility that Mark had murdered Lori in their apartment sometime in the early morning hours of July 19th and disposed of her body in an unknown, unknown location later that same day. The investigators' suspicions were confirmed on July 25th when they received critical information that, from Scott and Lance Hacking, who claimed that their brother Mark had made a startling confession. So I didn't put this in the notes, but he confessed to his brother. So July 24th in Utah is a holiday. It's a state holiday called Pioneer Day. And they had been spending that day together or they had gone to visit him at the mental hospital. I'm not sure which. But he had told his brothers about what he had done on the 24th of July. Court documents state that during the packing, Mark allegedly came across a 22 caliber rifle. Then at around 1 a.m., he went into the bedroom where Lori was sleeping and shot her in the head. <gasps> There's my I just t- don't understand people. I'm going to just say it. Like, No, what is literally wild to me is I'm like, like don't one, just tell her. Like, I'm sorry you think killing her is going to be the better option than telling her you didn't go to medical school? Like, <laughs> Well, and at this point, he had already told her, according to all of the records. He had like, already she told already her. knew. She just, I think she was going to leave. Oh. I think that's why he did it. But. Oh, gosh. 
what I don't get from people, I mean, they're total narcissists. It's like, okay, you made up a lie. You created this problem and you're going to punish me for the problem you created. Yeah. Like that's what I think is BS. That's the thing we always got to remember about these cases. It ain't smart people making these decisions. No, no. So Mark's not people in the right mind. That's for sure. No. And like anybody who commits these kind of crimes, they're not in the right mind, but that doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like they tried to get out of it. Oh, well, I didn't saying, know what I was doing. I was psychotic. No, it's because they're narcissists yep. that think they can get away with whatever they want. Yep. So Mark told his brothers that after he murdered Lori, he wrapped her body up in some garbage bags and the bloody top of the mattress, which he cut away with a knife, then disposed of her body in a dumpster at around 2 a.m., Paul Foy reported on August 11, 2004, Mark purportedly disposed of the bloody mattress in a church trash bin and the gun in another unidentified dumpster. The following day, Scott and Lance Hacking told the police of their brother's gruesome confession. Also, the thing that I never understand, again, we just talked about they're not smart, they're not in their right mind, but I'm like, okay, you're so, you love, supposedly you love your wife so much and you're so upset that she's going to leave that you're going to kill her? Yeah, it's like, that's still her leaving. Yeah. She's also, still not in your life. Now you're the one who freaking did it. And yeah, d- dumb, 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 dumb. Applause to like the brothers though. Like yes. the fact that like they went to the police. Because I feel like, I mean, obviously I'd do the same thing, but it's probably harder said than done. Yeah. Well, it's, he came from a very righteous family from my understanding. That like I, religious. That religious. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me that they turned him in so august 2nd the revelation from mark's brother led to mark's arrest on august 2nd and his subsequent can you say the word subsequent thank you transfer from the psychiatric clinic to the salt lake county jail mark hacking was arrested on suspicion of the aggravated murder of his wife police believed that he acted alone killing Lori in their apartment with a 22 caliber rifle while she was asleep and disposing of her body in a dumpster They found blood in several places in the couple's apartment, including on a knife located in the bedroom and on the headboard of the bed, as well as in Lori's car. What was the knife for? If he He shot her? He cut up the mattress. Oh, the mattress. Like he cut the blood spots out of the mattress. Ah, okay. And then went out and bought a new mattress. Not suspicious at all. No. So on August 9th, Mark was officially charged with first-degree murder and three counts of obstructing justice one week later. His bail was initially posted at 500000 but later increased to $1 million. On August 14th, AP reported, As the case prepares to go to trial, Lori's family, friends, and colleagues mourn her death. A memorial service for Lori took place in the LDS Windsor Stake Center in Orem, Utah, More than 600 people attended the service, which includes a display of Lori's wedding dress, a poster-sized photograph of her, and a plastic bucket used to gather donations for the search efforts. uh, Members of Mark's family attended the service, and his father, Dr. Douglas Hacking, gave the opening prayer. The Salt Lake Tribune reported, he was quoted in the article as saying, We truly appreciate the influence Lori has had on our lives. We'll all be touched by her in some way. We hope she can feel our love for her today. Lori's mother, Thelma Sorez, was one of the several family members who also gave a moving speech that day. During the hour and a half service, she spoke of her daughter's life and of the class and style for which she was known. It was clear to everyone who knew Lori that she would be sorely missed. On August 16, 2004, Mark accompanied his lawyer, D. Gilbert Athey, 
appeared before the third district court judge, William Barrett, uh, to schedule a date for his preliminary hearing. Stephen Hunt wrote on August 18th that when he appeared in court, he was wearing a bulletproof vest and flanked by seven bailiffs. Hunt suggested that it was unclear whether there were death threats made against Mark, but the unusual security measures were often used for high-profile cases. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Athey may ask the court to inquire into Hacking's mental capacity. It is believed that Mark's alleged mental illness may, may be a significant factor in the defense case. Hunt reported that Mark fell from a roof in his early 20s, which resulted in a head injury. Because evidence of brain damage could support an argument for reduced charges, it will likely be used at the preliminary hearing and trial. Which I also think his whole running around naked was yeah. just a ploy to tr- help Agreed. Th- that. You know what? I fell case. out of a van when I was a kid and cracked my head open. I ain't never killed no one. No. and <laughs> yeah, It you didn't make you crazy. You got brain damage I'm from just it. saying, like... <laughs> On August 27, 2004, a series of investigation uh, investigative subpoenas were unsealed, dating from July 21st to August 30th, which showed how detectives cast a broad net early in their investigation of Lori's disappearance. Cantham stated in the Salt Lake Tribune, the subpoenas included surveillance video from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, located near the park, and from the university's Neuropsychiatric Institute, cell phone and financial data records, uh, television footage of Mark on July 19th and 20th taken from local TV stations and credit reports. Before the preliminary hearing, the defense and prosecution teams will have to scour through all the evidence and find material that will support their cases. If the defense team is unable to produce a strong enough case, there is a chance that they may settle for a plea agreement. Hunt and LaPlante quoted Salt Lake City defense attorney Mark Moffitt, who said, you want to assess the strengths of the prosecution's case and strengths of the defenses to know if an offer is appropriate. It is unknown whether a plea agreement is in the works of the case and if it'll go to trial. So at this point, on October 1st, so it jumps a few months, well, a month. After a little more than two months since Lori was reported missing, her body was finally found at the Salt Lake Landfill According to Ashley Broughton of the Salt Lake Tribune, Police Sergeant J.R. Nelson made the heart-wrenching discovery after shifting through garbage by his hands and was quoted in saying, I pulled this group of trash out of a bag and hair came out of the bag. He further stated that upon closer inspection, he saw that the bag also contained what appeared to be a human jawbone and teeth, which I do not. It would be traumatizing to find I'm so thankful I have never found a dead body. Oh. The area was quickly enclosed and treated as a crime scene. Investigators worked for hours gathering Lori's remains and other evidence that might be used during the murder trial. Despite advanced decomp, it didn't take long for the human remains to be identified as those of Lori Hacking. Matt Kathman of the Salt Lake Tribune reported that Lori and Mark's families expressed a mixture of grief and relief. The newspaper printed a press release by the family in which they thanked the police and all those who contributed in the search for Lori. They also stated that they were relieved that her mortal remains were finally will be able to be finally laid to rest with dignity befitting the valiant daughter of God she was. Mark Hacking also espre- expressed his relief for them finding Lori. Mm-hmm, I'm sure you did. But here's the thing. It's like he dumped her out, He or he dumped her. Yeah, and in it's a dumpster. Like, but even if he said... Where he did that. 
It wouldn't have made a difference. That's what no, I'm saying. Because like, she was in a landfill. In the yeah. end, all I'll of that trash me- gets taken somewhere. Yeah. And it's like, how would he have known? Where I will to give find you her? more details about the the garbage place in just a minute. That is significant. <laughs> all right. So um, October. Oh wait, no. Unfortunately, the medical examiners were unable to determine whether Lori was pregnant due to the condition of the body. Moreover, they were unable to find the rifle that ended Lori's life. Nonetheless, prosecutors believe that they uh, that with the discovery of her body, their case was significantly strengthened because they were able to prove that she was actually murdered. On October 30th, 2004, Mark attended his arraignment hearing at the 3rd District Court. To the surprise of Lori's family, Mark's lawyer entered a plea of not guilty. They hoped that the defense team would change its strategy, especially after the discovery of Lori's body, but they didn't. Hunt said that Lori's mother, Thelma Suarez, berated her son-in-law for prolonging her family's agony and quoted her as saying, In pleading not guilty, Mark continues to hurt us. Mark is charged with a felony count of first-degree murder as well as second-degree felony counts for obstruction of justice because he lied to investigators and tried to dispose of the evidence. If convicted, he could face up to life in prison. If convicted? Yes, I know. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, here, this is what they had on him. So this is like kind of behind-the-scenes details that the police knew, but Mark didn't know they knew all this stuff exactly. Um, So Mark's confession prompted the end of a two-week-long search for Lori, which involved thousands of volunteers. Instead, the authorities organized a new search for Lori at the Salt Lake County landfill. It was hoped that her body would be discovered somewhere amongst the thousands of tons of garbage. The search for Lori at the landfill was expected to last about a month, but would take much longer than initially anticipated. Several thousand tons of compacted garbage more than 30 to 40 feet deep, and two soccer fields in length needed to be rifled through by volunteers. Can you even imagine that much garbage? That's disgusting. Um, uh, Cadaver dogs were also used to help in the search. The court TV article stated that there was 38 volunteers, including police officers, firefighters, public safety officers, and urban search and rescue team members who helped to look for the human remains at the World Trade Center. They spent an average of 11 hours a day, four days a week, conducting the back, uh, the backbreaking search. At the World Trade Center? So they're just saying these are the same searchers that searched at the World Trade oh, Center okay. that are now searching uh, helping. the garbage. I was so confused for a minute. I was like, Sorry. how did we just jump to New York? <laughs> no. I think they're just saying, like, it wasn't, that makes sense. It wasn't amateurs that were looking yeah. for her. Uh, they spent an average of 11 hours a day, four days a week, conducting the backbreaking search. The crew dressed in steel-plated boots, coveralls, thick leather gloves, masks, and protective eyewear combed through the rank trash using pitchforks, usually eventually resorting to digging through the garbage with their hands. And the Salt Lake Tribune reported, all of those volunteers believed that their time and efforts were well spent, even though many were uncertain if they were going to find Lori's remains. Even without Lori's body, Police Chief Rick uh, Dintz, I think it said, D-I-N-S-E, said, we have a good case here. We are hopeful we can find the body, but we believe the case is strong enough that we could prosecute without it. Howlett reported in the August 3rd USA Today, the prosecution's case was indeed strong. Mark's confession to his brothers would likely be admissible at trial and be particularly damaging to the defense case. Stephen Hunt and Ashley Broughton's uh, August 10th article in the Salt Lake Tribune quoted Assistant UT Attorney General Thomas 
Burker, sorry, B-R-U-N-K-E-R, Burker, as saying, the brothers will be good witnesses. They have nothing to personally gain. So basically, there's a, why would the brothers lie? Yeah. Like, you don't want your brother in jail unless they're actually guilty. Or do you? <laughs> in this case, no. The material evidence against Mark was also uh, damning to the defense case. Investigators have... Uh, genetically matched Lori's blood to the front of Lori's car on the couple's bed rails, headboard and mattress, as well as the blood found on the bedroom carpet and the knife found in its sheath in the kitchen, which was believed to have been used to cut the mattress. And just so you know, there's a discrepancy. One place it says it was in the bedroom drawer and now it says it's in the kitchen. I don't know which it really was. Investigators also discovered a letter allegedly written by Lori days before her death, which said, I hate coming home from work because it hurts to be home in our apartment. I can't imagine life with you if things don't change. Uh, La Plante reported on August 13th in the Salt Lake Tribune. The article further quoted Lori as saying, I got someone I don't want to spend the rest of my life with unless changes are made. So that's why I was saying it sounds like she was leaving him. Furthermore, prosecutors were compiling video evidence of Mark. One surveillance video showed him entering the Maverick Country store to buy cigarettes, checking his hands and fingers, and then driving away in his wife's car approximately 18 minutes after the time police believe he, that Lori died. CNN stated in an August 4, 2004 article, other video evidence uh, that may be used at the trial will likely include images of Mark disposing of Lori's body in a dumpster and a video of him driving her car to the park where he in intentionally said she had gone missing. And it was initially believed that the, pro uh, the prosecution's team, led by the Salt Lake County DA David E. Yoakum, Deputy DA Angela F. Michalos, and Attorney Robert L. Scott, who seek the death penalty in their case against Mark. However, the prosecution's decision instead to file a first-degree murder charge against the defendant, which carries a possible penalty of five years to life. Do you believe that? Only starts at five years. Five years to life. In prison, Reed reported in an August 9th AP article, uh, Reed claimed that the abundance of Lori's body prompted the decision. Oh, the absence, sorry. Not the abundance. That didn't make sense. Reed claimed that the absence of Lori's body prompted the decision. Moreover, he suggested that the prosecution's team would not file a homicide charge to account for Lori's unborn baby because the police were unable to confirm that she was pregnant, which really sucks. I wish they could have, so he could have got charged for his baby's death, too, because that's just a real a-hole move. Kill your wife and baby. Okay, March 15th. Lori's parents made the decision to remove the name Hacking from their daughter's gravestone. It was clear that they wanted to distance Lori from the name as much as they could from Mark. Lori's mother said that they did it because Mark obviously didn't want her anymore. The Salt Lake Tribune reported, The gravestone now reads Lori K. Sorez, uh Oh, I wrote in how to say this, and now I didn't save it. Uh, Phil, Philalina? Phil, Philinia? It mean, in Portuguese, it means little daughter. <laughs> It is uh, how they will always remember her. April 15th of 2004, Mark Hacking finally pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. Uh, he stood before the third district uh, judge, Denise Lindbergh, and admitted publicly that he shot his pregnant wife, Lori Hacking, in the head with a 22 rifle as she lay sleeping on the morning of July 19th, 2004. It was reported in the Salt Lake Tribune 
As Mark confessed to committing the dreadful crime, sobs from Lori's mother, Thelma Soares, filled the courtroom. Mark was originally charged with first-degree murder and three uh, second-degree felony counts for obstruction of justice, but later pleaded guilty to the murder charge in exchange for prosecutors dismissing the the obstruction charge. Because there was a firearm involved, the statutory sentence of, was changed to six years to life. And during the hearing, which lasted around 10 minutes, Mark showed no visible signs of emotion. According to Stephen Hunt and Matt Callahan, Salt Lake Tribune article, Soros exclaimed afterwards that she was chilled by her son-in-law's gruesome confession, but was relieved that he finally took responsibility for his actions. Lori's fa- father... Eraldo uh, Soares was quoted in the article saying that Mark's admission of guilt was like a knife going right through my heart. That makes me want to cry. Well, did he ever get pinned for the baby? No. Even, but he even confessed. Yeah, he even admitted that she was, she pregnant, was pregnant. But they couldn't prove legal, it. Legal, they couldn't prove it. So they didn't charge him for it. Legally, they couldn't prove he, it. Legally. Unfortunately, legal, things have to be legal to yeah. charge people yeah. for that. There has to be proof. And, you know, there was no proof. I mean, maybe if they had had the pregnancy stick with her DNA, they could have. But I'm sure that was long gone if she was five weeks. It was like a month and something ago. All right. Uh, Mark's sentence will be decided on June 6th. So they're not deciding the sentence quite yet. In an interview with Oprah Winfrey, which I do remember actually watching this episode, uh, Thelma Soares said that she hoped Mark would get a stiff sentence, maybe even life in prison. She was further quoted saying that she knew that when he meets the real judge, he will get what's coming to him. Meaning God, obviously. Or not obviously, if you didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded rude. Uh, based on the evidence against Mark, there is a strong chance that Thelma will get her way and justice will finally be served. So on June 6, 2004, Mark Hacking was sentenced uh, to six years to life in prison, the maximum the judge could give under the Utah law, under Utah's system of indeterminate criminal sentencing, first-degree felony murder, brings a mandatory five years, but because he had the gun, then it went to six years. In July of 2004, the Utah Board of Pardons decided that Mark Hacking's first parole hearing would not come until August 2034. So yay to them. So he hasn't even had his first parole hearing. No, he still has another 11 years. Thank goodness. Yeah. Don't let him out. Upon hearing the news, Thelma Soares made the statement, while it is a terrible waste of his life, the decision lifts a great burden from my mind and heart. The six-year minimum imposed by the law is an insult, not only to Lori and the baby, but to me and my family as well. I thank the members of the State Board of Pardons and Parole for their diligence and sense of justice in dealing with this tragic case. My faith in our justice system has been upheld. That just gives me chills. Like you don't, it it seems like you hear more often than not people complaining that the court system didn't do what they should have. And in this case, I mean, they had every reason to. They had all the proof they needed, but they actually did it. Oh, I think what she's saying is that she's, pleased that the court upheld what they needed to but the laws in general are just ridiculous like correct that's really the the worst possible sentence yeah six years yeah Yeah. well i mean yeah. in utah i feel like every place has their own laws yeah i think every well, state Utah's has their own minimum i know that's well, what i'm saying though wait, it's a utah thing don't get upset yet march 20th 2005 
Utah House Bill 102, also known as Lori's Law, was signed into law. It increases the minimum penalty for a person convicted of first-degree murder in Utah to 15 years to life. 15 years is still not even long enough. I agree, but that's a lot longer than five. Yeah, very true. Yeah. So Ten more. Utah does have wacko <laughs> laws, honestly. And then just a just a teeny bit of additional information. Thelma Soros set up a scholarship fund in Lori's name. By mid-September of 2004, the fund grew from 12000 to 81000 50000 of which was donated by the acclaimed television talk show host Oprah Winfrey, who interviewed Ms. Soros. Court TV reported in September 5th, or on September 15th, 2004, According to the article, the scholarship is awarded to a woman that has been disadvantaged by financial hardship, abuse, family difficulties, or other life circumstances, who attends the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business and needs financial assistance for her junior and senior year. At around the same time Oprah made her generous donation, Mark announced from prison that he intended to write a book about everything the proceeds of which would go to the Lori K. Soares Hacking Memorial Scholarship Fund. It is uncertain how much of the book, if any, has yet been written or whether there is a publishing deal lined up. What is certain is that we have not heard the end of Mark Hacking. Although this article is not current, you know, this was all around the, you know, I'd say at least 2006 would be when all of this stuff had taken place. And I have not heard anything more from Mark Hacking. So, yay. Thank goodness. So, there you go. On to Dasha. Okay. So, I'm going to share about a murder that I I don't know. I don't necessarily say it hits close to home, but it is like a friend of mine's. I would say it hits close to home. Your friend's husband got killed. Yes, my friend's husband was murdered. Here's the thing, though. When you're young, you know, singles ward type age. So what is that like? Tosh, that can be anywhere from 18 to like 30. Okay. So 18. That, okay, okay. I'm just wanting the range, you know? Yeah. You you know, you're not married. You haven't settled down. You don't have kids, whatever. So me and this individual, the wife, her name's Kirsten. We were pretty like good friends, I would say. And then as life goes on and you move and you get married, yeah. and you, you don't talk as much, yeah, right? So then you become kind of like acquaintances, distance. even yeah. though you're still friends. So... I have this friend. Her name's Kirsten. Um, she lives in Florida. And if you've heard of this story, I won't be surprised because it's fairly recent. Extremely recent. Yeah. So her husband, by the name of Jared, last name Brightigan, he was murdered in Florida on February 16th of 2022. So we're almost. We're right almost a year. year yeah. Yep. Almost a year mark. So. Basically, as the story goes, and I'll credit when I have an article um, pulled up, but um, this is really just from my own knowledge because I've been following it. And like I said, we're friends on Facebook and, you know, she posts a bunch of stuff. So I just, I've kept up with it. So yeah, so most of your information is direct from her. Yeah. So anyways, so the wife, the wife, yes, through Facebook and social media and things like that. Mm -hmm. So she shares basically what happened and basically, her husband, Jared, has two children from a previous marriage. So she, he's got two twins. And he's then got twins. Two, yes, he's got two a set twins of twins. Two four kids. You're right. He's got a set of twins from a previous marriage. And then he himself and Kirsten have two girls, two mm-hmm. others. So technically, he's got four. Well, he does date nights 
um, with his twins on a regular basis once a week. And so he'd take them out to dinner and Mm -hmm. et cetera. Well, what happened, I guess, is, or what they speculate, is that he was taking the twins home to his ex-wife's house. And with him, he had his two-year-old daughter uh, that just attended them on, you know, this date night. And when he was leaving the twins' home to come back to his home, there was a tire that had been placed in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. And this area in which he was driving was like a small road area, not a lot of light. He couldn't really drive around it. He had to get out and move the tire. Okay. So he gets out of the vehicle to move this tire and gets shot. I think it was three or four times, but basically just gets shot right there, cold blood, with his two-year-old daughter in the backseat, the youngest Mm -hmm. one that he had with him at the time Uh as well. That's horrible. So he'd already dropped off the twins and was leaving, and so he just had the one child. Yeah. Twins had been dropped off. He was heading back home, had to get out of the vehicle, et cetera. Now, the police are saying that the tire being placed there was no accident. Like, it was clearly planned. What do they call that? A um, setup or an ambush. Right. But uh, premeditated. That's what I'm Correct. thinking. Okay. It was like premeditated, planned. They knew the route. They'd have to know the route. Mm-hmm. Whoever it was, you know, knew that he'd be dropping the twins off at this time at this location and then driving this way back. And anyway, so... It's just heartbreaking. And I remember, I distinctly remember reading on her Facebook, you know, her post about this or hearing it or whatever the case may be, because that was the day after Kyle and I had just got to Albuquerque. And it's the day after my birthday. Oh, yeah. It was February 16th. So I just distinctly remember. And I was just like in total shock. Like, wait, what? You know, it's just like you read it, but it doesn't register. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have any suspects or nothing. anything? Nothing. Like, oh, well, I mean, of course, they probably, like, interviewed the, the ex-wife. And, but they never publicly Yeah, had. but they never came out with anything saying that. And, and it's an ongoing case, so, I mean, yeah. they're not just going to come out with, That's like, true. It's you know, only a year. Stuff. This stuff ta- does take a long time. So, but, I mean, there is an update recently, so that's what I'm going to share really quick. Okay. But um, the ex-wife and him didn't get along and that's like very known you could like google it and stuff they had like a bunch of like what would you call it um like marital they were constantly filing court cases against each other okay like custody things like that it was just kind of messy and i read about this just throwing something in like the the most recent thing i believe before she just said she's about to get into the recent stuff i just don't want you to say something that she's about to say Okay. What are you going to say? Well, about the about the breathing apparatus. Oh, good. Like when I was reading up on it before he was killed, the most recent thing that they were fought, that they were fighting about in court was one of their sons has a breathing issue and he's fine in low altitudes, but if he goes to higher altitudes, he needs a machine with him. And they were fighting over the cost of the machine and who had, you know, the machine with them and and that kind of stuff. So the courts were just really annoyed at this point. They're like, "Stop." doing these frivolous cases against each other. Yeah, I did read up on that, and I don't know all the details, but yeah, basically, they sh- the y- ex-wife had a device, and then they had to get a device because the ex-wife wouldn't let them take the device if the boy was coming with, you know, just a bunch of crazy stuff. But anyways, so anyway, so this is February 16th. Murder happens. Of course, you know, they go through a whole grieving period. I'm sh- they have the funeral. You know, she's posting... Every day, as I would as well, 
about like, you know, if you have any information, contact the police, there mm-hmm. was rewards, you know, all of this stuff. Well, February 16th is like what? 17 days away at the time we're recording this. Oh, yeah. And they literally just announced this last Wednesday, which I'm not going to go with dates because of just, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> this last Wednesday that they. I believe that was the 24th of January. Was it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that they basically have now arrested an individual oh. that they believe was the murderer. Okay. Well, that's good. I, right. But it's just crazy to me that it like took so, like a whole, almost a whole year. They didn't give like information. I'm going to pull up that article right oh, okay. now. There's, there's a little bit. There's a teeny bit. They, they don't share a lot because it is still ongoing. Yeah, obviously. But, but this is what I find interesting. So this is the article. It's just from Fox News. And it was January 26th, right? So a Florida man. I wasn't right. I said the 24th. <laughs> but oh, did you okay. say 4th? I thought you said 6th. Anyways, January 26th. A Florida man accused of murdering. My Jared Brightigan, which he was a Microsoft executive, in front of his child last February, appeared in courts on Thursday when he was held without bond in connections to several criminal charges. And this man's name is Henry Tenen, and he's 61 years of age. Faced a judge in the Duval County courtroom on Thursday morning, he was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, second-degree murder, child abuse, and accessory fact after the fact of capital felony. And then three more charges were later tacked onto him, consisting child abuse, conspiracy of murder, and um, accessory after the fact. So I wonder if it's like a hitman type situation is what I would assume. That's what I'm thinking. Like the ex knows. I'm not, again, also this is something that, I mean, we're just one podcast. We don't have like a million listeners. One thing I feel like is important is like in these ongoing cases, for example, like those Idaho murders that are happening, Mm -hmm. everyone like accusing people was causing so many problems for like the police and stuff. So Mm -hmm. just throwing that out there before I pretty much accuse someone. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like the logical thing would maybe be, you know, the wife obviously didn't like him, wanted to get him out of the way, maybe hired someone. There's more to that too. Well, and so, and I mean, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that that has crossed multiple minds. Like, it's crossed my mind. I'm yeah. sure it's crossed the police mind. I'm sure it's crossed the well, family's mind. Like, I'm just saying it 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 would be totally plausible. Plausible. Yeah. If you read all the articles, I mean, I haven't read the articles for about three, I mean, for about the, I read them for the first couple of months. But I was just going to say the police suspected the ex-wife right from the beginning. Or yeah. that she might have been involved in some way. Yeah, because she was, I'm going to say it, she was acting weird. Like, she just cut communication off. The twins are no longer allowed to, like, even see Kirsten and her girls. Like, and Kirsten's, like, heartbroken over that, you know? Like, like they were her kids, step too. She's to yeah. these two kids, and all of a sudden now it's just they don't have any contact with the family whatsoever. Just, like, cut off. It's like they just crazy. don't exist anymore. Yeah. So, going on with this article, um, the individual, Tenen, um, held without bond, and he is due to be... Is it arranged? Arraigned. Uh-huh. On February 16th. So the date that marks the oh, year. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Since his execution, um, Jared's execution. You mean his murder? Jared's murder? Since he was executed. Murder. Well, they consider it an execution, execution now that they've charged this guy with it. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. 
crazy. I was right? like, why are you saying execution? It was like an execution style murder because it was it was like planned. planned. Okay, and set up. gotcha. Like President Lincoln was executed. I assassinated. Assa- anyways, we're <laughs> I've going never down heard it rab- said like that, but that's fine. We're going down a rabbit hole. It's okay. So anyways, they know that he did not act alone. Okay. So the person they've mm-hmm. arrested, they know he didn't act alone, but of course they're not coming out with any further information because it's still, of course, ongoing. But this is what is so interesting. Investigators have disclosed that the individual who committed the crime tenon was living in a home he was renting a home that was owned by the ex-wife's new husband oh likes oh (laughs) fishy fishy yes and i'm gonna read exactly what they say so fernandez is the last name of the new husband husband so and i'm just gonna read it because it's like out on the world like you know i'm not like yeah. Disclosing any secret information. So Tenen, the murderer, lived in Jacksonville at a home, which was owned by Gardner Fernandez's second husband, Mario Fernandez, at the time of the murder. So the home was rented in February of 2022. Mm-hmm. It had just got rented yeah. by this guy. And Fernandez had purchased the home late in 2017, sold it in October of 2022. And Hernandez, or excuse me, Fernandez, Mm -hmm. the individuals, the ex-wife and the new husband, remain suspects in the crimes, a law enforcement source told Fox News. (laughs) So they're not like out of the woods, you know what I mean? Yep. No, definitely not. Well, and that connection probably puts them more under scrutiny. <laughs> right in the news. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're right in the news. But I just feel so, like like I said, I've been keeping up on it. I haven't necessarily shared a whole lot about it. I think it's just because it, it's so still to this day hard for me to even well, fathom or wrap my head around. Isn't her parents are rich and they come from Alpine, Utah? What? Don't they own like a stamping business yes. or something? So the ex-wife, the Fernandez, well, now Fernandez, um, her parents are from Utah, I believe, and they do own a company. It's like a stamp company or something. <laughs> I love how you guys always just repeat what each other say in different ways. <laughs> you guys do that so much. I'm sorry. I think it's called Stampin' Up. I think you're right. But what does that have to do with anything? Why are you bringing that up? Well, it was just, there was, okay. So in the articles I read, sorry, they had thought that there were some things that were fishy because... Right after he was killed, they decided to have a memorial service themselves, like her side of the family, with the kids because she didn't allow the kids to go to the funeral. That so she true. did not allow her twins to, to go to, to their, their dad's, dad's funeral. funeral. Yeah. Because that's one red flag right well, there. Well, it's because the ex wife was like, hell no, you're not coming, but I would love to have the twins there. What the hell? And oh, oh, yeah, I so get, Okay, sorry. I thought the, you meant the other way you around. Mean no. the, the current wife. The current wife would not let the ex wife come. Yeah, absolutely but, not. But I think she would have been okay if somebody else in the family brought the twins. Yeah. But she just said, no, the twins are Okay, that makes way more sense. But they bought like a huge like resort property. They went on like a big vacation. And then their, the funeral was like a swim party and like barbecue. Excuse me? <laughs> and they had like pictures of it and stuff it, that they had like put all over Facebook about it. And so. I don't know that, but. That's that, what I'm saying. People who get involved in this stuff, stupid. 
You're going to tell me that you don't look suspicious in a murder of your ex-husband when you're throwing a pool party about it? Yep. It's like, he's gone. I don't have to deal with him anymore. Hallelujah. Let's party. That's what I'm saying, though. These people, I'm glad that they're not smart because they end up getting caught because they're stupid. But at the same time, I'm like, do better. Like, how stupid are you? (laughs) And she just doesn't seem to be a good person. Like, she had an affair with the Fernandez guy. He he was her personal trainer. Oh, my gosh. So, Jared, the one who was murdered, the father, had purchased her, I think, like... A personal personal training training type thing. And she ended up getting involved with the personal trainer who is now her husband, Mario Fernandez. Okay, well, ma'am, if you happen to be listening, can you get it together? (laughs) (laughs) Or actually, if you just went to jail, that'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, um, the last thing I do want to mention, though, is that um, Kirsten, she did start a non-profit organization on behalf of, of course, her now late husband and in honor and respect to of her young daughter Bexley, the two-year-old that was in the car at the time that he got shot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Bridegan Foundation, and she's the founder of what they're calling now Bexley Box. So okay. her daughter's name Bexley, mm-hmm. and it's a box. And what it is is it's a essentially think of like a toy box. It's a toy box that is placed at the police station or criminal investigation like division, and it has like coloring books and diapers and stuffed animals and blankets and just things to comfort children because she said that while Bexley was at the police station, while Kristen had like no no idea idea what was going on, that she was so thankful that there happened to be a a woman that had a blanket or I think it was a blanket or something that she gave to Bexley Uh to have in comfort. And so Kristen was like, more police stations need to have some things to comfort children because she would have been so appreciative to have something like that as well at the police station at the time. That's, that's just yeah, so sad too. Like, well, and she got called by the police and well, and that's, you can dig into it a little bit more yourself, but she basically like, hadn't heard from him, hadn't heard from him. Well, that's odd. He'd be home by now. Called him, called nothing, nothing. Got a phone call from the police, police. station saying, mm-hmm. Hey, are you, you need to come. And then of course she's like freaking out. But she said in that moment, she didn't think to grab the diaper bag. She didn't think to grab, you know, whatever. So she oh, gets yeah, there. She's the got door. no diapers, no no treats, no comfort things. And so I really think this is cool. And you can go on uh, Instagram, the Bridingen Foundation, and they are doing, like, donations. You can see, like, the why behind the organization. There's pictures. And definitely and it's just really I'll cool. share it on our yeah, stuff. It's just definitely. really cool. So. And I'll put it in the show notes, too, for both that and the scholarship fund for Lori Hacking. So, I mean, the only thing we can do or what I have been doing is just praying for her and her family. And just that's a lot to go through. And I just can't even imagine. So, yeah. And she's so young. She's just in her mid-20s, right? Um, I think she might be a little old, like 28. Late, so late 20s. 20s. Yeah. But still, he was 33. Oh, okay. So, he, yeah, okay. But still so young. Well, yeah, still, that like is Kyle's so young age. to like lose your your husband, your provider, your kid's dad. Like that's just heart-wrenching. Well, I hope you guys liked this little deviation into what we normally talk about. And if you did, let us know because, I mean, we can do more like these if you'd like. Yep. We are not against it. No, not at all. It's interesting. Make sure you check out our social media to see, obviously, those organizations and stuff and just the yeah. other stuff we post. Everything is at Dead to the World podcast. Yeah, we'll pull, we'll post some pictures of these people yep. yeah. that were involved. I think mm-hmm. that would be good. Of the victims. Yes, of the victims. That's a good. That's a good point. If you want to see what the murders look like, look go it up find yourself. that yourself. I ain't giving <laughs> yeah, them any go more do attention. That we ain't giving them no more attention. Yep, exactly. So yeah, make sure you follow us. 
Oh, and rate and review us on your listening platform. That helps us a ton. And we hope that you join us next time to find out what happens when we are dead, dead to, to the, the world. world.